This is Eli Lake, and you are listening to The Reeducation. The topic today is nonviolent resistance, and my guest is Cameron Consarinia, the policy director for the National Union for Democracy in Iran. Last month, a friend of mine named Peter Ackerman died. He lived a rich life, becoming wealthy as a bond trader on Wall Street. He helped found the company Fresh Direct and pioneered the movement for ranked choice voting in American elections. But I want to focus on Peter Ackerman's enduring passion for ending tyranny. Peter Ackerman believed in the power of what is called strategic nonviolent resistance. He studied it as a young man at Tufts University, where he earned his Ph.D., And later in life, he founded organizations devoted to sharing the strategic insights that he learned from studying successful movements to bring down dictatorships. In 2002, he helped produce a documentary that chronicled the successful struggle of Serbia's resistance to their dictator, Slobodan Milosevic. Here's a clip from that film. But among the opposition, one group knows that protest is not enough. Working quietly, they target the very foundation of Milosevic's power, the ordinary people who until now have been afraid to oppose him. Their symbol, the clenched fist. Their name, Otpor, the Serbian word for resistance. Otpor, resistance, is already a year old. But in the aftermath of the NATO bombing, it's growing fast. We often associate this concept of nonviolent resistance with two great figures of the 20th century, Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. Gandhi won India's independence from the United Kingdom and King won civil rights for African Americans, not by the gun, but by organizing regular people to end their cooperation with regimes that oppressed them. These tactics are sometimes confused with pacifism, which is the principle of rejecting violence at all times, something both men believed in, or passive resistance, which conflates the idea of nonviolence with passivity. But nonviolent resistance is something else entirely. It is a theory that understands the power of the state is always a two-way street, even among autocracies. A dictator cannot rule over people who do not cooperate with his rule. Now, some critics have argued that nonviolent resistance seeks to appeal to the oppressor's conscience. Here's Stokely Carmichael criticizing Dr. King on this point in 1967. Dr. King's policy was that nonviolence would achieve the gains for black people in the United States. His major assumption was that if you are nonviolent, if you suffer, your opponent will see your suffering and will be moved to change his heart. That's very good. He only made one fallacious assumption. In order for nonviolence to work, your opponent must have a conscience. The United States has none. none. Stokely Carmichael was wrong about this. King did not succeed because he turned the hearts of Bull Connor or Governor Wallace but rather because he persuaded first blacks living in the South and later white citizens throughout America to withdraw their consent from the foul regime of Jim Crow. Volunteers not only marched, they braved violent mobs to sit at segregated lunch counters. 
They boycotted Selma public buses. They registered voters in states that made it illegal for blacks to vote. They violated unjust laws to destroy an unjust system. There's an important difference between these two theories of power. Carmichael says nonviolent action attempts to shame the oppressors to change their ways. But King understood that oppressors cannot continue to exist without the obedience and submission of the people who they would this is a philosophy crystallized in the 20th century by the great Gene Sharp, who mentored Ackerman and devoted his life to studying the strategies and histories of nonviolent resistance. In a speech in 1984, he explained why it's a fallacy to say that a dictator's power is derived from violence. We need to have an understanding of the nature of power. Now, a lot of people go around on the assumption that power derives from violence. That slogan that was a popular a number of years back, that power comes out the barrel of a gun, that unfortunately someone who was a self-styled revolutionary was mouthing. He should have known better, because the doctrine that power comes out the barrel of a gun is not a humanitarian, much less a socialist doctrine. It's a militarist and a fascist doctrine. And besides, it isn't true. Where do they get the gun? Who holds the gun? How many guns do you have to have? Where do you get the ammunition? How do all those people supplied? Power, in fact, comes from people, from human institutions, from the cooperation and obedience of people. Now, I realize that looking at the world today, it's easy to dismiss the theory of nonviolent action as wishful thinking. More than 30 years ago, Chinese students bravely stood before tanks at Tiananmen Square, and yet the Chinese Communist Party remains in power today. Belarusians took to the streets to defy a stolen election last year, and the man who stole that election, Alexander Lukashenko, also remains in power. Alexei Navalny rots in a Russian jail, and his nonviolent movement has been designated as a terrorist organization. But it's worth asking whether these movements would have succeeded had the organizers taken up arms. This is not to say that armed struggle never works. It has. Look at the American Revolution. But one of the reasons that nonviolent resistance has worked in the past is that it persuades over time the police, the army, and the bureaucracy to side with the people. If you join us, you and your families will be safe. An armed uprising, on the other hand, by its very nature, threatens the people any revolution will need to switch sides in the end. Had the Serbian Otpor movement chosen violent resistance, the chiefs of the army and police would not have defied Milosevic's order in 2000 to violently disperse the crowds that had gathered at Belgrade after he tried to steal the election. To understand the dangers posed by armed struggle, or armed revolution, I should say, look no further than Iran in 1979. That revolution displaced the autocracy of Shah Reza Pahlavi. In his stead emerged a fiery cleric, Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini. In 1979, Khomeini became the leader of a much larger coalition of socialists, liberal democrats, and others who were disaffected by the Shah's rule. At first, Khomeini promised to respect the democratic process. Leading intellectuals in the West believed he was an agent of democratic change. The French postmodernist Michel Foucault sung his praises during that tumultuous year in 1979. Iranians continue to vote today on the new Islamic constitution a document that legitimizes the power of the religious leaders and invests in one of them supreme powers, 
there's little question who that one supreme power will be, the Ayatollah Khomeini. Voting ends at 6 p.m. It will be several days before the actual votes are counted, but the results are hardly in doubt. At most polling places, 97% of the people are dropping green ballots into the box. Green means yes. The red ballots for disapproval are torn up. But Khomeini did not keep his word. He was a fundamentalist. He was a fanatic. So there was still a parliament in Iran, or in Majlis. There were still elections, so to speak. But candidates had to be vetted by a council of clerics. The real power in the new Iran resided with the supreme leader. The new Shah was the Ayatollah. And he got to work. He banned dog walking in public. He banned alcohol consumption. He purged Iranian radio of all Western pop music. And he instituted a regime of lashings and stonings for adulterers. In 1988, the regime executed 40,000 political prisoners in one fell swoop. Many of them marched alongside the fanatics led by Khomeini during the 1979 revolution. Over time, many Iranians, millions of Iranians, have begun to tire of these fanatics. Eventually, a group of reformers emerged. They gravitated around Mohammad Khatami, a moderate cleric who won in 1997 the presidential election. But Khatami was undermined from the beginning by the new supreme leader, Ali Khamenei. They were the ones, Khamenei and his council of guardians, who had the final say on reforms passed by the Majlis in Khatami's government. When Khatami was powerless to protect students who had demonstrated at Tehran University in 1999 against the regime, his presidency was effectively nullified. Since 1999, the regime has lost its legitimacy. There was the Green Movement in 2009 when the regime stole an election that would have made Mir Hussein Mosavi the president, only to give it to a reactionary named Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. Thousands of opposition supporters, mostly young, marched to Freedom Square. It was a happy crowd to start with, and people relaxed even more as it became clear riot police were under orders not to interfere. They all came to see this man, the defeated candidate, Mir Hussein Mousavi, who hadn't been seen in public since last Friday. Inching through the crowd aboard his four-wheel drive with a handheld microphone, he told the crowd, our people want respect and for their votes to be counted. The end of 2017 and in 2018. While the protests were triggered by Iran's worsening economic situation, people are also angry about corruption, poor living standards, and social inequality. And they've begun calling for a radical overhaul of the political system. There were demonstrations again throughout the country, spurred by failing banks and spikes in basic pricings. And now in 2022, once again, the Iranian people have taken to the streets to express their disgust with a regime that infantilizes and impoverishes them. Why are people angry? Because of sudden price hikes when it comes to basic food items. The government uh, announcing price hikes uh, with four basic uh, food items, including cooking oil, eggs, chicken, and, and milk. Other food items, including sandwich bread, pasta, flour, uh, they've gone up as well. And the reason for these sudden price hikes are twofold. On one hand, these price hikes are part of Iran's uh, uh, efforts to reform the economy, to get rid of very costly uh, subsidies. The other reason is the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Both Russia and Ukraine 
major suppliers of food to Iran. Russia supplies at least half of Iran's wheat supply. Ukraine supplying Iran with a lot of cooking oil. Obviously, the conflict there disrupting some of those supplies, and that too has led to some of these uh, sudden price hikes. With each uprising, Iran's leaders learn how much their subjects despise them. Demonstrators are killed in the streets and disappeared from their homes. Activists are forced to confess to imaginary crimes on state television. Lawyers are beaten and tortured. And yet this brutality has not brought domestic peace or democratic legitimacy. Gene Sharp and Peter Ackerman understood that it never does and it never will. Because they knew that a tyrant can only rule if the people cooperate with his tyranny. Well, we are now delighted to have Cameron Consarinia, the policy director for the National Union for a Democratic Iran, based here in Washington, but he is in contact with the Iranian freedom movement. And Cameron, thanks so much for coming on The Re-Education. Thank you, Eli, for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. So I want to jump into it. Tell me right now what is happening on the ground in Iran and what Tell me about these the, this latest round of, of unrest and uprisings that we're seeing. Sure. Well, again, thanks for the opportunity to be here, Eli. And, and I, I should say before I, I answer your question directly, how much the Iranian-American community, which, which Nufti works to represent, but also the people that you mentioned inside Iran, the activists, appreciate journalists like yourself and, and oh, specifically you. you for, you know, uh, you, you rarely find more and more you do find, but rarely, especially for the past few years, have you found people who stand up for uh, their cause. And so, you know, thank you for all that you've done right now. As you said, we, we are in the midst of another relatively large scale round of protests, although in the past few days, those have, uh, you know, sort of come off of their of, of their peak of this round. But I think what's important to know is that it's not just a random uprising. This is the latest iteration in a relatively, call it four to five year period of continuous uprisings. And if you, if you take that five year period and expand even further, what you used to see in Iran was large scale protests every 10 years, uh, and then every five years, every two years, now it's one year. Now we're getting to in terms of months and weeks. And so this is merely the latest iteration of a protest movement, which usually, as you know, has a sort of immediate spark, a, a certain price hike, the removal of a particular subsidy, very often economic, but then they very quickly grow into protests, which call into question much more than just the immediate economic hardships, but much broader political questions. So again, you know, this is certainly, uh, we're in the middle of protests here, but it, it's not just a one-off thing. It's a continuation of something much larger. So I want to ask about that because I think what you're describing is really a legitimacy crisis that the regime that came into power in 1979 has suffered it's really, I, I, I dated back to 1999 and Tehran University uprisings, but can you talk a little bit about sort of how in recent Iranian history with this regime that there, we are no longer seeing Iranians who are dissatisfied with that regime talking about the need to elect reformers, you know, pinning their hopes to moderates and why it has taken in many ways a kind of revolutionary tenor. It, it's it's a critical question. I think that's luckily in the past year, two, maybe three years, we've seen 
uh, what I think has been a long, a long-term incorrect analysis here in Washington change. And many people have realized the fact that you're pointing out, which is these protests are calling into question the entirety of the Islamic Republic. Uh, they're not just talking about, uh, again, immediate economic pains. They're not just talking about switching a few people uh, on the chessboard, if you will, bringing in some new quote unquote reformist foreign minister or president, whatever it may be. They are calling into question the legitimacy of the entire regime, as you said. Um, I, th I think the student protest is, is certainly a good place to start where you, where you first saw large scale protests of a particular sector against this regime, I think some would even maybe take a step further. And, and, and the reason I think that it's people are now from a variety of angles calling into question this regime's legitimacy to a degree goes back to how the regime itself identifies, its, identifies itself. You know, I think it was Kissinger who said that Iran has to decide whether it's a country or a cause. And from the very beginning, the Islamic Republic has been very clear that it is a cause. Ruhollah Khomeini, the, the first supreme leader of the Islamic Republic, famously continuously referred to, to his people as the Ummats, which is the, the Islamic nation, as opposed to the Persian word Melats, which means the nation, the, the people of the nation state. So from the very beginning of this revolution, there have been people who have called the, the regime's legitimacy into question because it claims to represent or stand for much more than your standard nation state. So from the very beginning, I would say there are people who call this regime's legitimacy into question. And then we move fast forward, let's say 1999, where you start to see new sectors being added to that. So that, that was the students uh, who were first disaffected after, you know, having the universities closed. And then when they reopened, they were being brainwashed with religious ideologies, with, with Islamofascism effectively having their Baha'i, for example, classmates barred from the classroom. So uh, I think for good reason, as is often the case around the world, students were the first to stand up to, to this extremism. And now it's growing to other parts of society as well. In recent weeks and months, you have seen, for example, school teachers being extremely active. You know, they're obviously barred from having any unions, but you see large scale and widespread protests of teachers in Iran. You also are now seeing more and more, again, large scale and widespread workers protest. You see sort of the beginnings of what could eventually turn into nationwide strikes against the regime, which I think many people view as being the ultimate death knell of the regime. But we've so seen that before, right? You, I mean, we you, have you, seen bus driver strikes. We yes. have seen things like that. Oil worker strikes. Correct. That, correct. Right. Yeah. You, you, you've seen all that. And, but I think what, what is unique now is that the workers, for example, are realizing that they can't only come into the streets for the right of workers and teachers can't only come into the streets for rights of teachers. The same with students. Everyone is sort of realizing that the problems that teachers face, the problems that workers face, that bus drivers face are not because there is some bus driver czar looking to make their life difficult or some teachers are looking to make their life difficult. They are, I think it's taken a while, but have realized, as you alluded to, that the reasons for each of these sectoral problems is the Islamic Republic itself. Uh, this is not something that, you know, you can't just fix the problem for workers or just for students or it's for mm -hmm. teachers. You have to fix the main problem. And that is the nature of the regime. So that's why I think has been the biggest development of what's happened in Iran is that people have come to this collective realization. I mean, slowly but surely you're starting to see that percolate into the West with some analysis that we see. And I think a big part of it, credit has to be given to the Iranian people because they're so clear in their chants. I mean, one of the chants that they often give in the streets is death to the entirety of the Islamic Republic. I mean, they can't be right. much more clear than that. And they, they, they also tie it to kind of foreign policy adventurism, mm -hmm. where the Iranians are supporting proxy wars throughout the region saying, you know, we, 
you know, we're not, not for Gaza, but for Tehran and that kind of thing. Exactly. I want to ask a little bit, I mean, we know that, you know, since 1979, there have been, you know, failed kind of violent movements. There's, there's been the Mujahideen al there's been various kind of armed Kurdish separatists. I mean, there, there have been a few kind of armed resistance movements that have gotten nowhere. But for the most part, it appears that the uprising that we're seeing right now in Iran, what we saw in 2017, 2018, what we saw in 2009, what we saw in 1999, these are uh, movements that believe in the kind of discipline of nonviolent resistance. And can you talk a little bit about that? Am I, or am I getting that wrong? Is there a violent kind of tinge to these uprisings? No, I, I think you're exactly right. And, and you know, the, the two groups, for example, that you, that you describe, you know, the MEK and, and separatists, I think for a variety of reasons have really little to no um, base of support inside the country for a variety of reasons. I think, first of all, their ideology very often puts them out of the mainstream, but also the methods, which I think is a bit more about what you're talking about. I think Iranians do, by and large, generally agree that particularly that level of society that is protesting on the streets, I, I think they do they do understand really quite well, actually, the philosophy of nonviolent civil disobedience, because I think they understand what a um, truly a brutal regime they're up against. And I think that many have, have realized correctly, in my view, that if they were to engage in violent protests, that would only give the regime more and more of an excuse, whether we look at it from an international legitimacy perspective or, or a national security perspective for the regime. You know, if they were to start, you know, throwing Molotov cocktails, you know, you, you give naturally the regime more of an excuse to crack down. So I think by and large, Iranians, the, the protesting class, if you will, certainly subscribe to the theory of nonviolent civil disobedience. Uh, I think that you have sort of thought leaders, if you will, in the opposition or opponents who have long preached this. I think that has a lot that, you know, people have really bought it. I think that there is certainly a fear, unfortunately, that if eventually this does not succeed, then you will have some fringe elements turning to violence. But I think by and large, most people understand this is the best way forward. And, and the, the main reason I think is because it's not necessarily purely an ideological or philosophical thing, but they see that that is the best way to succeed. They see that that gives them the biggest chance of success. If you were to have nationwide strikes, for example, uh, mm -hmm. just like the thing that eventually ended up bringing down the Shah. So this is very interesting to me because, well, there was a violent component to the 1979 revolution, of course, because we know that members of the Shah's regime who didn't escape the country were hunted down and killed. Mm -hmm. And soon after the Iranian revolution, there was also many violent purges from the regime against yeah. many of their allies. And we saw that come to a, you know, sort of a head in 1988 when 40,000 mm -hmm. political prisoners, most of whom were not, you know, kind of hangers on to Shah Palaf's regime. Mm -hmm. They were, they were, they were, they were at one point kind of brothers and our bro brothers yeah. and allies of, of the revolution. But to play the devil's advocate here, you know, we, we've already seen massive amounts of violence used to put down peaceful demonstration and nonviolent protest in Iran. We, we know that from 2017, 2018. And, you know, we saw and and, you know, we can sort of see this this strate the, the strategic nonviolence for those who maybe don't fully understand the concept as seen as like, well, you know, I don't know how long this can take. I, I am reminded of conversations 
I had with Ayatollah Khomeini's grandson who came to the United States maybe 15 years ago, who yeah. came to Washington. And what he told me is, you know, because I've been a believer in this strategic nonviolent action for some time, he said, well, it's not going to work in Iran. The only way that we will get our country back is when, you know, the current leaders of the regime are killed. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that tension? Because it strikes me that, you know, at least so far, you know, one can be fairly pessimistic about the chances of success. Mm -hmm. Why do you still see largely these, these kind of this leader? It's a leaderless organization now, because we see that, you know, that there isn't like one particular leader, like a Mm -hmm. Gandhi or a King, but they have remained nonviolent. Mm-hmm. I, I think that it's, it's it's always good to think of it from this perspective because you know you're right. You, you don't have 100 percent of the population subscribing to this theory of nonviolent civil disobedience. And, and as I said, I think you, you we do run the risk, unfortunately, that Iranians do run the risk of if this path eventually does not lead to success, then you will see, I think, unfortunately, more people looking that way. But a part of it goes back, back to education and and when you're facing a regime like this one and, and and for example the Iranian people right now their ultimate goal is getting rid of this regime their ultimate goal right. is establishing a secular democracy that's a very difficult task and so when you sort of set that out as your goal I think one tactical mistake uh, that and, and I'll just I should also say this Mufti as you know Eli you know we're not an opposition group we're an Iranian American organization sort of working here in DC to to give folks in town within the media or in the political circles a better idea of what's going on. So we're not, you know, strategizing for the Iranian democracy movement. We're just trying to be, you know, sort of sure. share their voice. But in my opinion, one of the tactical mistakes that's been made by activists and others has not been setting out more short-term achievable goals. You For 40 years, they've had this long-term goal. Let's get rid of these guys. And that's a very difficult task. And so I think part of the frustration and and, and the the concern that you're alluding to that people could turn towards more violent means has been as a result of a lack of more achievable goals. I think all of us know in, in our daily lives, you know, if we, you know, let's say I want to, you know, get out tomorrow and I'm going to lose 50 pounds, you know, by October. Okay. That's a bit difficult. Why don't we start with five pounds or let me start eating, you mm-hmm. know, an apple a day or something. So the lack of having these more achievable goals has, I think, was, it was a, a mistake, but slowly, but surely actually you're starting to see some of those. For example, you saw, and this was something done by Iranian Americans uh, a few months ago outside of the New York Times building in in New York City. They sort of with a crowdsourcing type of activism, they came together and rented a billboard right in front of the New York Times building and said, you know, you are basically, you know, propagating for the regime, things like that. So little small wins like that just that just give people a sense of confidence is more. I think people are turning to things like that right now. Or, for example, another example the families of flight PS752, the Ukrainian airliner that the IRGC shot down with two missiles, mm-hmm. which I think most people now view as an intentional shootdown. They're extremely active in Canada. And right now, for example, the Canadian Soccer Federation have invited the Iranian team to play. And they're being extremely active in their, in their for example, actions to cancel the match and things like that. So there are shorter term things beside overthrowing the government that I think people are now starting to look to as sort of short wins that build up success into the larger thing. That is, I think, one one reason that you know, that will be one way for activists to not lose hope in the ultimate project by sort of chalking up short wins. But aside from that, uh, I think it's 
I think it's the fact that, you know, education itself, there've been a lot of great uh, people speaking about this issue. A lot of, we have an amazing amount of intellectuals, even inside the country in Iran, who speak about this issue there. You have folks like um, Majid Tabakoli, who was a leader actually in the student protests, who, you know, writes extensively about this issue. People really refer to, I think, as, as, a, as a, a prominent voice on this issue. And you have some of the folks outside the country really leading. So I, I think that Iranians understand this. There have been some tactical, I would say, errors along the way. But while I do fear that, you know, it would be possible for some to turn to violence, I think, I think by and large, Iranians, uh, I think, understand that this is the best, best path forward. Well, and, and just to bolster your point, the reason why I believe that nonviolent resistance is a, is a better tactic and strategy than armed struggle is because ultimately the goal is to persuade the sort of mid-level IRGC commander not to fire on the crowd. The ultimate goal is that everyone who makes the Islamic Republic's kind of apparatus of, of terror possible has to live in a country. They have families, they have children who will be, you know, kind of inspired by these ideas and frustrated by, you know, the infantilization and the impoverishment that this regime has, has provided, the corruption. Mm -hmm. And so that is how you have to sort of create this safe space I hate you. I hate that word normally, but <laughs> you need to create, you need to sort of persuade the police, the riot police, you know, even, even the domestic, the MOIS and the, and, and various pillars of the regime that are there to basically control the population to understand that if they side with the people that they and their families will live, that this is not a movement that will seek, you know, to, to sort of repay the injustice in, in kind. That, that's exactly right. And I think that that's, that is a realization that a lot of, you know, again, what do you want to call them? Intellectuals, thought leaders have, have talked about for so long, whether it's broadly, you know, folks like, you know, I know you mentioned Gene Sharp and others just globally yes. who've, who've talked about this issue or, or even in the Iranian context. It's, it's, it's such an important point. And, and they look to, you know, surrounding examples. For example, you know, you, I, I've heard an, a remarkable amount of, Iranian activists talk about the mistake of, for example, the, the, the mistake made after the invasion of Iraq of dismissing, you know, thousands of Iraqi soldiers, many of whom went on to, you know, join, you know, ISIS or, or whatever. Just the, the fact of removing entire organs of the state, especially those with the guns and the other type of heavy machinery. So they look, so, so it's a very, I think it's interesting because I, I often hear in DC, especially from some of these folks who are you know, pro-engagement, as they would call it, or, you know, or pro-appeasement, as I think we would more realistically call it, that, oh, you know, that the people who are, you know, as they would often pro-regime change in Iran, they just, they just, they have no plan. There's no thought behind this. I would totally disagree. I think the people who are advocating, whether inside the country or outside, they're extremely thoughtful. I mean, they're thinking about issues um, that you're talking about. How can you you know, give some sense of, 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 of assurance to an IR, a mid-ranking IRGC officer. Again, not those who are, you know, who have committed crimes. They'll obviously, they should obviously go to courts, courts of law. But how can you give them some assurance that, you know, they're not going to, no one's going to come after you. No one's going to, you know, kill you or, or send your family into exile. And that's, that's really important. And as, again, there are people inside the country like Majid Tavakoli talking about this. And yes. there are also important voices abroad. I think, you know, you have great activists, I think, doing a lot of uh, work sort of you know, pushing the regime like Masih Ahmadinejad. I think you also have, you know, important voices 
again, whatever one thinks of the past of, for example, Reza Pahlavi, who I think more than others has actually done messaging to the army. This is the Shah's son. Correct. Correct. The Shah. And he's done a lot of messaging. What I've seen, and and at first, when I first saw, I was sort of shocked, but it's to your point, it, it makes a lot of sense, is messaging directly towards the armed forces saying, look, now is the time to put down your weapons and stand with the people. And, you know, again, whether that ends up working in every case or not is different, but just that kind of messaging coming from voices inside the country and outside, I think is really important in, in, in giving people a sense of, okay, this is not going to be another bloodbath, another cycle of killing yeah. uh, the fathers and the sons. It's, a, it's, an, it's an excellent point. I want to just use the, the rest. We have a little bit of time left, but I want to use the rest of this interview to talk about what in the West, not just the U.S. government, but what can people who are moved by the plight of Iranians do to really show solidarity and to bolster their movement? I mean, there's a, there's a great phrase, be, be their voice, because they, they don't have access to social media. But can you talk about, you know, what someone living in Canada or the United States or in Europe can do who's moved by this struggle mm-hmm. to, to, to show solidarity, not to show, but to, to really aid this movement in mm-hmm. Iran. Yeah. Well, first they can come to the next Nufti event. If they want to write us a check, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll take it. But I, I, I mean, you, 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 you said it and, and oftentimes it sounds cliche, but just talking about this issue, talking about what's happening in Iran is, is, is really unfortunately absent. And actually that's what we sort of spent most of our time here in Nufti working on. And, and I've often said this to friends partially in jest, but I, I really do mean it is I think that Iranians cause will be successful when you have a, you know, the New Yorker tote bag wearing, you know, organic, but, you know, farming, shopping person on the, on the streets of Manhattan talking about this cause, you know, when it becomes something that's mainstream, when you have everyday Americans talking about this, I think it will, it sort of gives policymakers you know, the breathing room to be a bit more effective because now the problem that we face, and, and you know this, Eli, better than I do, that we face in Washington, we're talking to members of Congress, the media is up, you know, you guys are just talking about regime change. You guys are just talking about Iraq and, you know, you want U.S. tanks rolling through Tehran. And, and that's not what anyone wants. It's certainly not what we want. But when, when you have, you know, everyday people talking about this issue, talking about the fact that women in Iran are banned from singing, talking about that, the fact that in Iran, Religious minorities like the Baha'is are are literally barred from attending school. That there's been an effective ethnic cleansing of the Jewish population in Iran since the Islamic Revolution, and more than ninety percent of Jews have been forced to flee the country. It used to be one of the biggest populations of, of of Jews in the Middle East, and they've been forced to flee. It's just talking about these things, you know. For example, there was an op-ed that came out the other day in the Wall Street Journal by Hossein Ronari. He wrote the piece from inside Iran. It's the second piece he's wrote for the journal from inside the country after his first piece. He was arrested and he has a line in there that said, you know, he was arrested on three charges, most of which were related to his piece, the Wall Street Journal, propagating against what they call, quote unquote, the holy system of the Islamic Republic, acting against national security and having four bottles of booze. And in his piece, he says, it's true. I had four bottles of booze. And, you know, I imagine that may, uh, you know, cause some legal problems for him. I hope it doesn't. But, you know, he, he had the, the audacity to come out and say that, look, you know, I, I am facing charges from my government for having four bottles of booze in my apartment. And by the way, a person was executed last year on for drinking alcohol. So, you know, the fact that something like that is printed in the Wall Street Journal, you know, the, the most widely read newspaper in the United States, you know, those things are, are important that people just hear about the actual reality of what's happening in that country, that women can't sing, you can be executed for drinking alcohol, 
just uh, just really talking about it really does help not only because it gives Iranians a sense that okay people are people abroad are hearing our stories they're standing up for us the fact that Americans are doing it is is really important because uh, maybe it's no longer you know sort of popular to say or you know people sort of shy away from it but America really does stand for something especially for people in in oppressed societies I mean you you think back to Natan Sharansky and the Soviet dissidents who you know, I, I read were, were tapping out in uh, with their fingers on the cells of gulags that, you know, President Reagan was was speaking to them. President Reagan called Soviet Union an evil empire. You know, today in Iran, there, there is that same sense, which is why there's there's criticism of the current administration for not speaking out on these issues. So, you know, Americans speaking up on this gives gives Iranians a, a lot of um, confidence and a, a, a real big moral boost. And then again, it sort of, I think, allows policymakers to be more creative in, in how they can support Iranian people when they understand that voters get this issue as well. But I would just caution and say that, you know, we, we should never lose sight of the fact. I think you're right that there are things the United States government must do mm-hmm. to at least have a channel of communication to people who are organizing and are in touch with and yeah. understand what's going on in terms of this uprising and legitimacy crisis in Iran, that's 100% right. But at the same time, you know, the United, we in the United States need to understand that Iranian people will be the ones who are sacrificing. The Iranian people will be the ones yes. who, will, who will manage to pull this off. And it's not really, it's not only not for us, but we're not, we're not really capable of orchestrating Absolutely. that. And we, and, and we should understand the limitations in that respect, but there's still very much that we should do. I want to ask, before we go, you know, I, the, the issue of the crippling sanctions mm-hmm. on Iran right now are, I think we'd have to acknowledge that that does have an effect, sure. even though there are, there are carve-outs for food and medicine on the Iranian economy. And I think that, that honest people can disagree on what this means in the context of Iran's freedom movement. Mm -hmm. But I would say that the literature on this, people who've studied nonviolent conflict have said that really sanctions have very little effect one way or the other on the success or failure of these movements, that it's much more internal. It's much more about that kind of calculation and negotiation with trying to get the various pillars of the violent pillars of the regime to side with the people. Does this ever cause a sort of tension, which is to say that Nufti, your organization, is about, you know, supporting a democracy movement in Iran, but a lot of the advocacy right now in Washington is a sort of debate about the nuclear deal, yeah. which, is n- which has nothing to do with a freedom movement in Iran. It's got nothing to do with democracy in Iran. In fact, if there was a deal, and I don't think there will be, but if there was, I mean, it would, it, it would probably in some ways, you know, kind of further legitimize an illegitimate mm-hmm. regime. Can you talk a little bit about that? Which is to say that, you know, I mean, there, this is, this is the debate right now in Washington, but it almost feels like it's, a, it doesn't really get to the relevant issue, which is that you have a regime that should be, that is no longer legitimate, that is weakening from within. And, you know, how do we figure out for how the free world can help them? Mm-hmm. No, you, you, well, first of all, if I can, just briefly on your last point, you're exactly right about, it. for example, what we would advocate or what I think the, the majority of Iranian activists would, would advocate or call for is not America deciding the future direction of Iran or not America no. organizing the Iranian democracy movement. No, it's, it's about being supportive. I think that's why people are so shocked at this administration because they say, 
we're, we're asking the bare minimum of, of you and you're not even doing that. You know, we're not asking for anything really. Don't even spend a dollar necessarily. But your, your point is exactly right that, that at the end of the day, the people who decide the path of this movement, that the people who determine ultimately its success are the Iranian people themselves. And, and they're the ones who are, who are suffering for it right now. So you're exactly right. To, to, to policy and, you know, the sanctions, you know, again, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Anyone who, who looks at this issue honestly, even if they, for example, support sanctions as a policy tool, recognize, I think, that it does create, it, it does create some hardship for the people of Iran. Again, I, I would, you know, I, I wish, I, I wish you would, I wish it was possible for you to have Hossein Ronapi on this podcast instead of me. We would have been able to speak up much more effectively these issues. But he's the person who just wrote in the journal, and a lot of his piece was about this issue of sanctions, and and it, and it refers to the notion that yes, you know, it does cause some extra harm for us, some extra pressure for us. But I think what most people in Iran understand, those who are sort of on the street protesting, is they are facing everyday sanction, first and foremost by the Islamic Republic. Again, whether it's social for women, whether it's uh, other otherwise for religious minorities, really everyone in the country, they are sanctioned by this regime and they're sanctioned by the economic inefficiency and corruption and and mismanagement of this regime. So, you know, if 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 sanctions add uh, you know five percent on top, it's unfortunate. But I think the way they look at it is if it helps us get to our ultimate destination, which is getting rid of this regime or having a secular democracy, then we'll take it. As to the efficacy, it's it's a good question. I think that one thing we've been thinking about recently is, are there things to be learned from the policy decisions that the West has taken collectively against, for example, Putin after his invasion of Ukraine? Are there lessons there that can be in a that can be applied to Iran going forward? Because, you know, I know that the Trump administration policy was maximum pressure on the Islamic Republic, but we're seeing, I think, a lot more pressure applied on, on Putin now. I mean, some of the asset seizures of, of oligarchs, some of the, the, you know, being kicked out of international federations, all these, I mean, that's, that's really more max pressure. So I think that there are ways to be more effective what we advocate is is not only pressure on the regime, but a second, uh, sort of the second shoe, which is what we call uh, maximum support of the Iranian people. Right. Again, guided by what you say, that they are going to be the ones who are, who are doing the work. They are the ones who are risking their lives, you know, taking their lives into their own hands. If, if, if the United States could support them, part of it's just communication, really, just sort of standing with them. Uh, other ways, for example, if we look to historical examples of of what labor unions did for American labor unions did yeah. for the solidarity movement in Poland, things like that. I mean, where is the AFL-CIO today? You know, where is the ATF today? They're, they're, so they're, they're missing an action when it comes to another movement that is looking at one of its main uh, goals is, is the rights of workers and, and the dispossessed. So that's, so that's what we advocate is, is a dual policy of max pressure on the regime and max support of the Iranian people. I think that's what can ultimately be effective in, in achieving a strategy. But that requires, to your point, actually having a strategy because it seems currently, and even in past administrations, the it, it, policy towards Iran has been singly focused on the nuclear issue, and it misses everything else. Uh, everything else is forgotten, whether it's the domestic human rights situation, whether it's the ballistic missiles, mm-hmm. whether it's the regime's support of terror. So this sort of single focus on the nuclear issue it not only is ineffective, but it doesn't even constitute a strategy. I mean, you can't think of a better uh, example for kicking the can down the road than, for example, trying to revive the JCPOA, which at this point is not worth, you know, six months or, or 12 more months of, of nuclear limitations. Well, that's very well said. I, I would just add to that that part of the problem is that the American progressives for 
nearly 20 years have been seduced by a false narrative that yep. if you support the democracy movement in Iran, then you will be, you know, leading America to a shooting war with Iran. And it, it, which is its own problem because the Iranians are in a kind of proxy war with the United States. They have mm -hmm. since 1979, but it, it, it really does uh, a disservice for the, you know, the, 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 the freedom movement in Iran. And, you know, I mean, we, we both know that this is sort of that narrative and framing that narrative has been, you know, largely the work of one Trita Parsi who yeah. founded a rival to your organization, the National Iranian American <laughs> Council, and is now at the Quincy Institute. But this is, this is, this has been, I mean, there is a, there is a very large NGO network that is invested in this idea that you have to make a deal with the, with, you know, the uh, Iranian regime mm -hmm. in order to avoid war. That was the talking point of the Obama administration for the, uh, for the nuclear deal. And it's just not true. And it need not mm -hmm. be true. And this, by the way, I'm, I mean, you know, if, if we didn't live in such a screwed up country, it would be the American left that would be leading the charge right. for human rights right. and women's rights in Iran. And it hasn't been. I'm not going to say that's entirely because of Trita Parsi. I mean, some of it's because of a, a kind of hangover effect from the 2003 Iraq war. And exactly. There's all kinds of reasons for that. But one of the reasons why I, you know, I, I have been following your career and the work that you do with Nufti is because I do think that this is the beginning of kind of trying to rebalance that. I don't see you, Cameron, as, you know, a hardcore conservative or anything like that. I really see you as sort of a, an old style liberal who believes in these values and that they should be university and, and that freedom should, should, and that, and that Iranians have just as much of a claim to freedom as anyone else. I, I very much appreciate that. And, and, and you're exactly right. And what's, what's so fascinating. And I, I sort of keep, keep going back to what people inside Iran are saying, because as you said, they're the ones leading the fight. What's been amazing in the past year, really, you know, your comments about Atrida and, you know, just sort of these infamous groups that he started has been for a long time. One of their main talking points was, okay, this Iranian diaspora, Iranian Americans, whatever other people were opposition, you know, they're disconnected. They don't know what's going inside Iran. So, you know, ignore them. Look at what people inside the country were saying. And that really worked for them when people were talking about, you know, reformists and, you know, things like that. And people voted for Rouhani and Khatami and, you know, things like that. But now you'll notice they no longer use that talking point because they have become so really hated, I have to say, inside Iran that you have like these new, it's really fascinating, these new young up and coming rappers who are inside Iran. I mean, they're basically <laughs> like street rappers and they have songs specifically talking about Nyak, specifically talking oh, about wow. people like this and, and calling them out by name and saying, you know, you guys are sellouts, you guys are traitors. All the, I mean, it's, there's this, this young generation of Iranians who realize that they have been misrepresented in the West for so long, and they're sort of reclaiming that. Or for example, again, this Hossein Ronari piece in the Wall Street Journal, I mean, he literally, you know, hyperlinks and calls out, you know, leaders of these organizations, you know, saying, you guys are lying. You guys are, you are guys are selling the West a false bill of goods. And, you know, that's sort of what we've tried to, to rebalance, as you, as you kindly said here, here in Washington, because if you if you pull, for example, the Iranian American community, the number one issue they care about is human rights and democracy in Iran. I think they were sort of they were duped for a long time. OK, that the only way to do this is, is through JCPOA and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, they were duped by groups like this. But, you know, our whole goal, for example, is for Iranian Americans to learn something from, say, the Cuban American community and, and play a more active role here in Washington as opposed to 
expecting things to, you know, just happen. But well, I, I would hope you would learn from, you know, the Serbian resistance to Milosevic or a successful democratic transition yes. because Cuba is still under that, the thumb that's of the that, Castro regime. That, the, the, that we've got to, we've got to tell our activists, opposition, yeah. you know, friends to, to learn from them, which I hope they will. But no, you're, you're exactly right. Well, Cameron, this has been a wonderful conversation and I really thank you for your time. I know how busy you are. And uh, so l- let everybody know where, if people want to kind of learn more about Nufti, where they can go. Sure. Uh, again, thank you for your time, Eli. And, and I really reiterate uh, what I said at the beginning. Thank you for, for all that you've done because, you know, you're, you're one of the few journalists who, who stood, you know, with this cause and with, I, I, I've literally heard, and this is not, you know, just, you know, Persian niceties, but from people inside Iran, you know, specifically thanking and naming you because oh, wow, their wow. protest, you're I'm the blushing. one talking about it. So, so, you know, people really appreciate that, but, and, and I appreciate this opportunity um, to be here. You know, people can go to our website, it's nuftiran.org, N-U-F-D-I-R-A-N.org, same handle on Twitter. We try and, you know, sort of translate these protest videos coming out of the country. We try and sort of give us as much update information as we can. Hopefully, you know, folks can attend our future events or you know, get signed up for information and, you know, we'd love to be in touch with them. Well, listen, thank you again. And uh, if you like this podcast, everybody, please give it five stars on whatever app you're listening to. Write a nice review. It makes us all feel very good. At least five stars. Go for At least five stars. Give us many stars. Okay. Thank you very much, Cameron. Thanks, Eli. This has been The Re-Education with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcast. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing.